The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all that the congregation of people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. Numbers is a tough book. Let's just face it. We don't have to make excuses for it. In fact, as you just read, the very first sentence of Numbers is not even like a bad novel. You know, it was a dark and stormy night. It's nothing. Instead, it's a call to list names one by one. A long list of names and numbers that are in each family and each tribe. And then, as though that's not enough, you come towards the end of Numbers to chapter 26, and there's another long list and even more numbers. You say, why? Why is that in there? Is God testing you? You know, you have a plan to read through the Bible and God's saying, yeah, let's see if you get past numbers. So I'd like to look at these lists, but not in name by name. I'd like to look at what place they have in the book of Numbers. When we look at the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 5 and 6, it says, with most of those actually speaking about those in this list in Numbers 1, most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then it says this, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, the ones in this list in Numbers chapter 1. So there's two lists, Numbers 1, Numbers 26, two generations of people. And what I'd like to do is first give you just an overview of these two generations. Then I'd like to draw four lessons to be learned from their example as 1 Corinthians 10 teaches us. And then lastly, just some comments about why raising children is a challenge. So it's Father's Day, and so I'm going to be directing this more to parenting. But the question is, which generation of people would you like your children to be members of, dads? Which kind of generation are you, uh, are you raising? There's these two generations mentioned, these two chapters in Genesis. Both actually are lists of soldiers. This is actually a mustering of an army. They're being uh, organized as warriors to move forward into what God has for them. Both Numbers 1 and Numbers 26. Both are children of God. They're members of the, of, of the children of Israel. Both experienced amazing things from the hands of God. They've seen miraculous provisions and, and amazing liberations from armies. And both were promised blessings. And here, the blessings we're thinking about really are earthly blessings. They're promised a land, the promised land, where it'll be flowing with milk and honey. They'll have freedom from oppression and slavery and be able to serve the Lord as he wants them to. So there's a lot of similarities between them, isn't there? But then there's also profound differences. The first generation was a generation that always looked 
backward. And as you read, especially Exodus and Numbers, but then even Deuteronomy, you'll see that this happens over and over and over again. Oh, they say, you know, Egypt wasn't that bad. Uh, slavery, yeah, you know, the, there was bad days, but it wasn't really as bad as we thought. And the complaints start just weeks after they're liberated from slavery, if you can imagine this. So in front of them is this promised land. March forward, land flowing with milk and honey, where I'm going to pour my blessings out on you. Behind them is slavery and bondage in Egypt. And this is a generation that looks backwards. I don't know if I even need to apply this to you. You know how it might apply to the Christian life, right? Looking back to our bondage, our Egypt, our slavery, and saying that's, yeah, you know, I had good days there. I wish I was back there again. This was a backward-looking generation. They experienced this miraculous liberation of God. I mean, Pharaoh was brought to his knees, if you can imagine. The greatest army in the ancient world, or certainly one of the greatest armies of the ancient world, was crushed and God freed these people. But they rebelled against God over and over and over again. So what should have been a journey of a few weeks, really from Egypt to the Promised Land, ended up taking them 40 years. And this was 40 years in the wilderness. And as I'll explain, none of this backward-looking generation made it into the Promised Land. In fact, this is called, I think it'd be proper to call them the wilderness generation. That's the name of this book in Hebrew, in the wilderness. So these were people who were in the wilderness and the whole story of their lives was lived out in the wilderness before ever experiencing the promises of God. The second generation, on the other hand, is a forward-looking generation. They were marching forward towards what God had promised to them. Numbers 26, that list occurs about four decades after the list in Numbers 1. So it's a new generation with a new heart, you might say. They also saw the miraculous provisions of God. I mean, they were there in the wilderness as God provided them food and water and even clothing. They were not perfect. That's clear. It's clear from history. But they were ready. They were zealous. They were loyal to God. They wanted all that God had for them. And so they were marching forward. So as you look at the book of Numbers, it's interesting that there are seven judgments in the book, depending on how you count them. But all of these judgments were on that first generation. After the list of the second generation in uh, Numbers chapter 26, there's no more judgments of God. Just the story of a people who are entering the land promised to them by God. Of course, there's a lesson for us here, isn't there? God's teaching us. I don't think any dad, any mom, I don't think any parent would want children who were characterized by those things that characterized the first generation. First generation lived their life. I, you know, there, there were a nomadic people. I think there's many cultures that are nomadic all through the generation. So they lived their lives as nomads. They had families, they got married, they had children, they worked. I'm sure they had schooling and training. They did all the things that a culture did, but the sum of their earthly lives was lived in the wilderness. 
They were the wilderness generation. None of them lived to see the promised land except, of course, you know, Joshua and Caleb, the only two. Not Moses. Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Not Miriam, uh, Joshua's sister, uh, I'm sorry, Moses' sister, who sang that beautiful song after the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Not Aaron, the priest of God. None of them were allowed to enter the promised land. All of them died in the wilderness. So 1 Corinthians 10 says, all of this happened as an example to us. So I'd like to take that seriously, uh, particularly for Father's Day, and I'd like to press on you four themes to hold on uh, to. I said there's seven plagues. I'm not going to go into all seven of those, but I'd just like to look at four themes to hold up, first of all, as a mirror for ourselves. Four things that we should examine ourselves about. And, but then maybe I could also say four of these themes to hold up as a lens through which to assess our children's hearts. What's happening with our children? I'm, I'm not intending to give techniques for parenting. These are, you might call them the big themes, the big heart issues that we work on all our lives before God and then all the lives of our children we pray and teach and encourage. I think they'll be familiar to you, these four themes, but I'll offer them as a reminder to all of us. So here's the first one, authority or autonomy. Authority or autonomy. Now we understand authority. We've been seeing even in scripture, we've been seeing in, on Wednesday nights that all authority comes from God. And so authority, the very idea of it is a biblical idea, and God invests this authority in certain places. And, of course, we know, we know that honoring this God-given authority, learning to do that, begins in the home. Autonomy, on the other hand, literally means self-law. It means, you know what, I'm going to do what I want. There is no law above me. I am my own law. So it's this question, authority or autonomy. Israel was under authority. As you read Numbers, you'll see they were under authority in the home as well as in their civic life. And they were asked by God, they were commanded by God to recognize this authority. Just as an example, when they camped, when you camp, where do you camp? Don't you drive around? Maybe you don't camp, but if you camp, don't you drive around and find the best possible spot for your family, the best scene, softest grass, whatever it is. But when the Israelites camped, each tribe had to camp in a prescribed place. They were under authority. This is Reuben where you camp, Judah, this is where you camp, Dan, this is where you camp, and they had to go there. They had no choice about it. They were under authority. Every tribe went where they were told. They were under the authority of the one God had appointed, Moses. And they were told, that's life, man. You don't get to camp where you want. I'll tell you where to camp. Authority was there in every aspect of their life. But the people, you'll see, over and over rebelled against the leaders that God had put over them. It's human nature, of course but it was certainly their nature. So as one example, Numbers chapter 16 is the story of Korah. 
And Korah and his cohort went up to Moses and they said, who are you to lead us? I can lead. In fact, anyone can lead. Who do you think you are? And the truth is, he may have been right. He may have had the gifts to lead. He may have even had people admire him and look up to him if he were to take the mantle of leadership. But the fatal flaw in Korah's thinking was this. God had not appointed him to be the leader. All authority comes from God. God had appointed Moses, not Korah. And as you read Numbers chapter 16, you'll see that there was a judgment of God against Korah and all those who followed him. And here's what God said. Chapter 16, verse 11 in Numbers. You have gathered against the Lord. See, they thought they had just got, gathered against Moses and Aaron. But God said, no, this is my authority. I've vested in them and you've gathered against me. So the question is, do your children, dads and moms, do your children see your authority as the very authority of God? That God has invested in you his authority. And in fact, not just in you, but in the government, in leaders at work, supervisors, foremen, owners, leaders in the community, leaders in the church. Do your children, are they learning that this authority is really an expression of God's honor and God's authority? Some have never learned this in the home. It's sad to say, you can see that. Their children walk all over their parents. In other homes, it's the opposite. Parents are harsh. Dads are tyrannical. And the children grow up with resentment towards all authority. But here is a call, as well as in the New Testament, to model godly authority. You know, it's, it's authority that's strong, but it's servant-hearted. It's authority which is sacrificial. It's not authority which is exerted to make dad comfortable, but it's dad becoming uncomfortable to make life good for his children. It's authority which is devoted to do good to the child in love. Children need to learn to honor that authority or else children become, well, they become adults. And what happens? Well, they're quarrelsome all through their life with anybody who tells them what to do. They quarrel with supervisors at work and they can't hold on to their job. They quarrel with the law. They, they cause commotion with leaders you know, with coaches of their sports teams, of their children, or they cause commotion in church, they, they're just unable to admit and accept that authority is really for God. They're children of Korah. They're full of resentment and complaint and criticism. I could do what you're doing, and I could do it better, and maybe they could, but God didn't put you in that place, so get over yourself. Authority or autonomy. That's the first thing. So here's the second theme. Repentance or regret. You know what repentance is. It's sorrow. Really, it's sorrow before God for having offended him and sinned against him, a desire to change. Oh, God, help me. I don't want to do this anymore. Regret is really just sorrow at being caught. Repentance or regret. In chapter 14, if you want to read that uh, this afternoon, it's a really 
key chapter because they've come from Egypt and they're at the very boundary of the promised land. Here we are. That didn't take long. Let's march in and take what God has for us. And so you know the story. Moses sent in 12 spies. Ten of them came back with a scary report. Oh, there's giants in that land. We'll never win. The exceptions, of course, were Joshua and Caleb who said, yeah, we can do this. God's with us. But they heard this report from the 10 spies, chapter 14, verse 1. It literally says that the children of Israel began to weep. They began to cry. Oh, no, we're going to die. We're going to die. Our wives are going to die. Our children are going to die. We're all going to die. Why did we ever come here? And God judged them. Here was the judgment of God, chapter 14, verse 23 and on. They, this generation, will by no means see the land. All of you will wander in the wilderness and die there. Wow, it's a hard judgment. You know, remember, this was the generation that had seen God defeat Egypt, liberate them from slavery, and they did nothing. They just sat back and watched God do this. Remember that. And now, now they can't trust God to give them what he has promised to give them. So God judges them. He says, you're all going to die in the wilderness. You know what they did? They did exactly what your children do. As soon as they heard the punishment, they said, um, no, 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 we'll, we'll go. We've changed our mind. We'll, we'll, we'll go. We're ready to go. And Moses said, nope, too late. So some of them actually decided, no, 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 we're going to go. Really, we're going to show that we're, we're, we've changed our mind. So they uh, took up swords. They gathered a little army together. And against the orders of General Moses, they went against the Canaanites, and Moses reminded them what happened. In Deuteronomy chapter 144, as he's recounting their journey, he says, remember what happened? You ran because the Canaanites and others chased you like bees. They were put to shame. This is the big goal. It's the large goal of our Christian walk also, but it's the prayer, and it's the goal of every parent to teach children to feel sorrow for sin. They put in them a desire to change, not just to avoid punishment. I, I think that's natural. I'd avoid punishment too. But to more than that, to say, I want to be different. God, help me. Even to recognize the weakness and inability to change is a sign of God at work. I need help. And then to draw near to them as parents and to pray for them so God draws near to them. So that they experience the, that grace and joy of being forgiven and restored. And that becomes sweet to them. Sweeter than merely avoiding punishment. So here's the third theme. So authority or autonomy, repentance or regret. The third is contentment or complaint. You know, discontentment seems like such a small issue, really. Is that a big sin? That's one of those minor sins, isn't it? Yet, you, you might remember if you read 1 Corinthians 10, it's one that's focused on there. And it's one that is everywhere in the record of this first generation. Because the roots go deep. Ultimately, discontentment is a complaint against God himself. You didn't give me what I need, Lord. We feel envy, we feel jealousy because God goofed up and gave someone else what really belongs to us. It's a complaint against God. 
And really, when you think of it, it's because we really don't know what would satisfy us. We think we know. Children think they know what would satisfy them. You know that as parents, but they really don't know. And when we're walking with the Lord, we also don't know. So these Israelites grumbled all the time. They murmured all the time. I know your children never murmur, never complain, but these children, children of Israel did. So what did God do? Well, here's, here's just a sample. I'll give you two illustrations, and you can read many more illustrations in the book of Numbers and Exodus. So one complaint they had was, if I only had more. If I only had more. Numbers 11, we looked at that a few weeks ago. Uh, they were complaining that they didn't have meat. Now, they did eat meat. You should remember this. They had flocks and herds with them as they left Egypt, so some of them were used for meat. They also celebrated the Passover, and you know the main dish at the Passover was mutton. So they really did have meat, but they wanted more. We don't have enough. If only we had more, how happy we'd be. And so they start to complain, you know, slavery wasn't so bad, because at least we got a lot of meat, we got fish, got onion, we got garlic, it was so tasty. Yeah, we worked hard, but boy, the food was great. And so you remember what happened? Numbers 11, it's, it's humorous. God gave them all the meat they wanted, and the text says, until it came out of their nostrils. They got sick of it. They literally got sick of it, as you read at the end of the chapter. They realized that is not where satisfaction comes from. More, more, more doesn't give them what they want. I'm not much for quoting Star Trek, but I think Spock got it right. He said, you may find that having is not so pleasing as wanting. You know what? We find that in life all the time. Having is not as pleasing as wanting. Our desires fail us. We really don't know what would satisfy us. We really don't. Having more doesn't really satisfy. If you want proof, point your kids to the toys scattered all over the room and say, remember when that toy there was going to make your life so happy and now you kick it under the bed because you don't even look at it? More. All I need is one more thing and then I'll be happy. And it doesn't work. Let me give you one other illustration of how they didn't really know what they needed for satisfaction. It's in Numbers chapter 20. Children lose perspective. Everything is wrong. Everything is wrong. So they were thirsty. That's what was really wrong. But they complained that everything was wrong. Their leaders were wrong. God was wrong. They saw things way out of proportion. They said, oh, well, instead of praying and saying, God, I'm thirsty. Could you give me a drink? You know what they said? They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Overdramatized, right? Not really in control of their emotions. So what did God do? Really didn't do anything. They were foolish children. God gave them a drink. Yeah, he used Moses. It was miraculous. You can read the story. But he gave them a drink, and they were quieted down. That's all they needed was a drink of water. I don't know if that's true with you guys. You know, sometimes you have kids. All they need is a 
bite to eat and they're just losing it like it's the end of the world. Here, eat this and be quiet. They don't know what they need for their souls to be satisfied. And by the way, neither do we. We're often crying for the whole world to be turned upside down. And God says, here, take a drink and shut up. <laughs> teach them. Teach your children. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Otherwise, what happens? They grow up wanting more and more and more. Rather than learning how to <clears throat> truly enjoy what God has given them. Oh, I just need more money. I need more degrees. I need a bigger office. I need more junk to fill my garage and then fill all the storage sheds I have. And for some reason, I'm still not satisfied. Teach them contentment. It's a lifelong process, contentment. So here's the fourth one, worship or idolatry. Worship or idolatry. You know the first command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the, it's the foundation of life for God's people. Everything begins there. Everything comes from there. In fact, it's interesting that communal worship, corporate worship, was at the very center of their life, even their civic life. So if you look at Numbers chapter 2, you see that when the tribes encamped, I said they were designated where they were to encamp, but it was with the tabernacle in the center. The tabernacle was the worship center. And the worship was literally at the very center of their communal life. God was telling them physically that he is the center of life. Worship was the organizing principle for their family, for their community, for their civic affairs for their morals, even for their thinking about the world. God is at the very center of our life. So dads, the question is really, how are you doing in this? How are you doing in making God the very center of your family? Our family schedules and priorities settled around that communal worship. You know, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is not a throwaway verse. You know, where it says, don't forsake assembling yourselves together. That's the will of God. God wants us to do that. If we say to our children, Christ is Lord of my family, and if that's embroidered on, on pictures on the wall, but if his lordship is only words, then the children will quickly catch on. They'll see that dad is just playing with words. He doesn't really mean it. How is the Lordship of Christ imprinted on our schedules and on our family life? God has to be the center of our thinking. I think in this day and age with a lot of turmoil going on, even thinking about COVID or thinking about race and justice and thinking about equity in a hundred different settings, how are we showing our children that God is at the center of our thinking about these things? When we see the news, when we hear about discussions about the environment or, or justice or sexuality or entertainment, dads, are you showing that the God who revealed himself as in Christ is the only one who really makes sense of it all? There's insight there that helps us to understand what's happening in the world. C.S. Lewis had this wonderful statement. He said, I believe in Christianity 
as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Dads, are you showing all of life in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ? Worship or idolatry? So as I conclude, I just want to ask, which generation do you want to raise? I think we know what the answer is, don't we? We want children who march forward. We want children who are walking after the Lord, wherever he leads, eager to, eager to taste the fullness of his blessings that he has for us. My, my, my Father's Day verse is uh, 3 John, the fourth verse. I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking after the truth. And I know that's your verse too. That's your hope. That's your goal. No greater joy than to know that my children are walking after the truth. They're, they're going forward. They're going after the Lord where he leads We have to tell our children that God's call is simple, but it's not easy. We can't lie to them. We have to tell them, children, it's going to take courage to march forward. It's going to take a reliance on God to march forward. Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. Yeah, there's challenges in marching forward. But children, we have to go forward. There's no other way to go. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge for all parents, for dads and moms, because our culture is against us in this. If I can just remind you of those four things I mentioned, just think about what your children are learning as they walk into the culture. Authority or autonomy. In the culture they read, you know, I'll decide what's right and wrong for me, thank you. It's up to me. It's my values that count because it's my life. In fact, people resent anyone telling them what to do. They'll only do what people tell them to do because they want to avoid punishment, not because they recognize God's authority. How about repentance or regret? You know, repentance, the very idea of scripturally humbling ourselves before God. That's considered an insult to our humanity. You're going to ruin their self-esteem. You're going to ruin their humanity, their sense of who they are. You're debasing them. Contentment or complaint. Our whole economy is based on consumerism. You've got to buy, you've got to buy, you've got to buy more. If you're not buying enough, you're probably not doing your part. And so we see ad after ad after ad telling us how happy we'd be if we had this. And you know what? If you order in the next 30 minutes, you can get two of them. And boy, will you be happy then. Satisfied. That's what they read. And worship or idolatry. Oh, there are so many choices today. So many choices. You know, our young people, I pray for them because they have to make these choices. Who am I going to follow? Who am I going to admire? Who am I going to model my life after? Who who will I give my loyalty to? Who will I trust? And the answer might be nobody. For a lot of people, the answer is I'm going to trust nobody but me. I'm the only worthy of that, only one worthy of that kind of loyalty and love. Joshua was one of the two from the first generation who made it into the promised land. And here's what it says in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. So he turns to the people and says, yeah, you're going to have a lot of choices. 
Go ahead, choose. I'll tell you what I'm going to choose, though. He says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors from beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's a commitment, dads. That's our motto. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So dads, let that be your motto. Moms, let that be the motto in your home. Pray for your kids. Pray for them. Teach them. Train them in the ways of the Lord. Create in them an appetite for the Lord Jesus Christ. Show them how he makes sense of all of life and everything that they're experiencing in their own heart. Show them that whatever else they might lose by not going backward, going where everyone else is going, it compares not at all to the good that God will do them. He will keep his promises. Teach children to march forward with courage and with fortitude, to stand up with what's good and what's true and what's righteous and what's holy, because that's the kind of soldiers that God wants us to be. There was a slave trader. You know his name, John Newton. He sold human flesh, if you can imagine. What an evil man. And then God brought him low, and he became a slave himself. And then God opened his eyes. He saw the grace and the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wrote these words from a famous hymn that we often sing. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as I shall live. May that be true in each of our homes. Let's pray. Lord, we pray again for the families represented here, the families of those who are watching. Pray for mom and dad. Lord, we pray for parents. Oh, Lord, first examine our hearts. We want you to be the Lord of our lives. And then, Lord, we pray for our children. They're so precious to us. We'd rather die, Lord, than to see them harmed. So, Lord, now give us wisdom how to live that love out in practical terms. As parents, Lord, help us to train them and bring them up to know you and to love you and to march forward where you lead them. In the name of Jesus, amen. So God gave a blessing to the generation of Joshua and Caleb just as they were about to enter into the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 31. And that's my benediction, that's my blessing on you. May you be strong and courageous as you march forward, knowing that the Lord leads you and he will never leave you or forsake you. Amen.